Good morning, everyone. This morning, just before we start our summer series on sinners and saints, I thought I'd use this opportunity to just talk about evangelism and bring up some reminders for us who may be timid or fearful evangelists. Um, I was golfing last Thursday in the Water Ambassadors Tournament, and it's kind of funny on reflection that we call these things tournaments. It's not like it's the Masters or anything. It's a very grandiose term for what we were doing last Thursday. There was no tournament. But anyway, our our foursome that we had assembled was was very average. We started out and it was like par, 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 birdie, bogey, par, par, par. And I think after 12 holes or so, we were exactly even on the course. And so uh, about halfway through, we started calling our team name um, the Incredibly Average Golfers. And uh, we were we were just like team average. And and I think when I when I think of my own personal evangelism, this is me talking here. When I think of my personal evangelism, I think that is probably the nickname that I would be stuck with. People would see me going by, and they would say, "Hey, there goes the very average evangelist." You know, if evangelism was a spectator sport and people were heckling me from the sidelines, they would be saying things like, "You are very mediocre." Your performance is acceptable. You are solidly in the middle of the pack. You're just okay. That would be the heckling I would get because my evangelism is very average. And that would be accurate. It may even be a little generous. And I think if we assess ourselves and we assess Lakeside as a church, I think we would probably feel that we are about the same. We are all very average. It's kind of like the Blue Jays this year. There's, there's one or two bright lights on the team And in our midst at Lakeside, there's one or two bright lights. There are those people who are five-tool players, and they're hitting above league average, and they're hitting way above our average. And we have a few people like that that seem to turn every encounter into a gospel opportunity, and they share effortlessly with just the right words to convey the good news of Jesus in the context that the person needs it. And and we have those people here. We have those five-tool evangelists on our team. But the rest of us... Even though when we do the TV interviews, we keep repeating that it's a team effort and, you know, everybody contributes and we're given 110%. You know, secretly we know that we're actually only giving about 60%. And it's the superstars that are actually carrying the team. It's not us, it's them. And that's discouraging. I mean, I think we have to be honest about that when it comes to evangelism. We have to be honest that it's it's discouraging. Uh, None of the Blue Jays are going out there to lose. They're not going out there to strike out, but they keep striking out. I mean, smoke cannot hit a slider (laughs) or a changeup or a curveball. But we do the same thing, right? We swing and we miss, or more often we stand there at the plate with the bat on our shoulders and we don't even swing. We just watch a two-seamer go right down the middle. And we're afraid to even swing the bat. And that's how evangelism is with us quite often. We're just very average, we're very timid, we're fearful evangelists. So, so how do we even have this conversation about evangelism then without being discouraged or being discouraging? And I don't want to be discouraging. I don't want to be a discouraging person or to induce guilt somehow over this topic. So we have to have this conversation in a way that isn't discouraging. Now, there is some proper guilt to be felt. When we're disobedient, we should feel guilty and let that guilty feeling lead us to repentance. But God has no intention of discouraging us or leaving us in shame. That's not what he wants on any topic. 
Guilt and shame just aren't good motivators for evangelism or for any ministry for that matter. So we have to have a healthy conversation about evangelism. Where do we find courage for timid evangelists? And I have, I have three things that I want us to consider as kind of a foundation for us timid evangelists, very average people who are just sort of mediocre in what we do in evangelism. And these are three things that I think the Bible teaches. And this message is not about types of evangelism or the bridge diagram or the three circle or the throne or, or those types of things. This is more foundational. This is just a conversation that we're having about things that maybe we need to be reminded of so that we can be encouraged in our evangelism, especially as we go into this summer where we are intentionally creating capacity for more people to hear the word of God and to have, hear the hope that's within us. We want to build up our courage a little bit in the weeks to come so that we can share the good news. And so these are just three things I think the Bible teaches and that I think will increase, uh, if we increase our trust in these things, it will increase our confidence in our evangelism and our obedience in doing it. So this is what the Bible tells us. Uh, the gospel is good news. It's a message of hope and love. We hear it's a message of love in, first, in John 3.16. And it's complete to meet every generation and every person in whatever place in life they are at. We have to remember this. The gospel that we share is a message of love, and it's complete, and it meets everybody where they are. Secondly, we want to remember that God is sovereign in evangelism and provides hope and power in every place that we find it hard. Wherever we find evangelism hard, God is there to provide power and to provide hope for us. And then thirdly, prayer creates in us the longing that we need to have for people to know Jesus and opportunities to be effective. Evangelism without prayer is very completely ineffective. And so we have to have prayer beside our evangelism. So first of all, let's just talk about this complete gospel. The gospel is good news. It's a complete gospel for every generation and need. And I think in some ways, many ways, the Western church, especially in the area of evangelism, has really overcomplicated things and been caught up in methods that overshadow the message. And methods are not messages. Evangelistic techniques are not the gospel. And I I recently read an article about a church in Iran that is suffering persecution, obviously, in that country, and members are being hauled away and thrown in jail. And uh, But at the same time, the church is growing in leaps and bounds. As As these people are getting released from jail, they're actually bringing prisoners with them back to church. And a Western pastor was there observing this, and he asked the Iranian pastor what the evangelism strategy of the church was. And the Iranian pastor said, strategy? Uh, we just tell them that they are sinners until they believe us, and then we tell them that Christ died for sinners. That's their strategy, right? And we lose that. Just tell them that they're sinners until they believe you, and then tell them that Christ died for sinners. That's the strategy that they're using, and it's working. And we have to remember that. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins and was raised again. That's the gospel. It's that simple. And yet while the gospel is simple, it's also contextually sophisticated, or let me say complete. Because although the problem of humanity is just this one stubborn root of sin, it grows up into a thousand different kinds of rebellion and hurts and false desires and needs. And so the gospel is simple, but it's also complete to engage people at wherever they are, whether they're Iranian prisoners or whether they are teenage cheerleaders in Halliburton High School. 
Right? So the gospel is simple, but it's complete to meet everybody wherever they are. And so we consider the context of the gospel, and I'll cover this really quickly just for time. Uh, an example that I was going to use here is in Acts 18, we have Apollos. And uh, it says that he, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, and though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Now, why do, I, why do I pick that one out? Because you see, Apollos was a guy who had been saved. He knew he was a sinner. He knew Christ died for sinners. He wanted to tell people about it. He's an evangelist. He's out there talking in the synagogues boldly. But he, and he was teaching the gospel, but these bystanders, Priscilla and Aquila, they're like, okay, he hasn't, he's, he's missing some stuff. He's not quite complete. He hasn't got the Holy Spirit stuff in there yet. So they take him aside and they instruct him on that. And, and also, since he was talking to Jews who didn't understand the indwelling of the Spirit that comes with knowing Jesus Christ, they just understood the Spirit of God as something that fell on people as it did in the Old Testament from time to time. But now the Spirit indwells us. And so Apollos got some teaching on that. And so... They basically taught him about the gospel so that he could go forth and be better equipped to to share the gospel. And then he contextualizes it for the Jews so that the gospel meets them specifically. And that's why I say quite often that Apollos is kind of my favorite for the writer of the book of Hebrews. Because when you read the book of Hebrews, you realize it's basically the gospel for Jewish people. And it says later on in Acts 18, it says, When he arrived after this teaching, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from Scripture that Jesus was the Messiah. So here's Apollos contextualizing the gospel specifically for, he, for Jewish people. And if you read the book of Hebrews, that's what it is. It's a contextualized gospel. So it's simple, but it also is complete in that it can meet people where they are at. It can be contextualized. And it's important that we understand that the gospel is complete for all generations and for all kinds of people that come along and for all specific individuals. And so just as an example of what I mean by that, as we're thinking about our evangelism in our context, there's the gospel works in, in generational context. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about different generations and how the gospel, even though it's the same gospel, it's the same simple message, it meets people in different generations differently. Boomers and Gen Xers, you guys are all over 40 now, sorry to say it. Most of you are over 50. Generally, we asked, if we were a boomer or a Gen Xer, we asked questions about ourselves like, what do I do with my guilt? And how do I ensure that I go to heaven? Right? Anybody been, had a gospel evangelistic situation and they're talking about, you know, if you were to die today, where would you end up? Right? And that's what we thought about as boomers and Gen Xers. What do I do? I feel guilty. What do I do with my guilt? And how do I get to heaven? And those are important questions. And the gospel answers those questions, how to deal with your guilt and how you get to heaven. And that was generally, as a boomer or a Gen Xer, that was your starting point into the gospel. It's what attracted you. And then hopefully from there, you continue to explore all the good news of the gospel, and you realize that the gospel is far more than just dealing with your guilt and making sure you have fire insurance for heaven. In fact, the gospel moves into your life and shows you a thousand things that it does for you. It's not just this therapeutically way to feel better about your sin. And if it hasn't expanded into more than that for you, then I encourage you to keep coming back to church and learn more about all the things that the gospel is for you. Now, millennials and Gen Zers, though, or Gen Zers, I guess we have to say, it's an American term. Millennials and Gen Zers, they generally ask different questions. 
the gospel seed comes to them differently. And, and I did some reading on Barna, and Barna Research Group discovered that the life questions that, that millennials and Gen Zers are asking is, how can I thrive as a human being? How can I be less afraid? Where is all this anxiety coming from, and how do I deal with it? So the gospel answers those questions too, but generationally, the, the gospel is going to come to this next generation very different than it came. It's not about examples of a, of a holy judge who, who, who declares you innocent because of the blood of Jesus and you're set free from the courtroom. That whole guilt scenario has less impact and resonance with Gen Z because what they're thinking about is, what is my identity? How am I going to thrive? Why am I so fearful in life? And the gospel answers those questions too. You see, our, our culture is transitioning from a guilt versus innocence culture to a culture of shame versus acceptance. It's not so much that Gen Zers and millennials need to deal with their guilt, it's that they need to be accepted. They need their identity affirmed, or they need to find an identity that they have. And so the, the gospel is complete in that it meets those answers too. There's not just one set of answers that the gospel meets. It meets everybody where they are. And so this generation, the gospel will start with answering questions about their anxiety and about their identity and about how they can thrive in life and have purpose. But the gospel won't stop there for them. It will continue to grow and expand and show them that the gospel is everything that they need in their life. And so those are just sort of broad brushstrokes about how the gospel's complete and equipped to address any generation. And, and I say that because I think we need to be reminded that the gospel message is timeless, that the gospel message is hope for everyone in every generation in every circumstance. And those are just broad brushstrokes of the generation. We can get down to personal examples, of course, right? They're personal contexts, and this is where most of us operate. Because the root of our sin grows up into hundreds of different kinds of brokenness and different kinds of need. The gospel meets individual people in their specific place. And so we can again look to scripture and say, what does the Bible tell us about the gospel and how it meets people individually? Paul, the apostle, starts to narrow down the scope of the gospel in meeting people in an evangelistic perspective in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 to 23. He just gives some general examples in there. He says that there are strong people who he becomes strong for, and there are weak people who he meets them in their weakness, and there are people under the law, and there are lawless people. And Paul says in this text that I engage with all of these people, regardless of their circumstance in life, I meet them where they are for the sake of the gospel, and the gospel reaches them there. And so we understand that the gospel can meet and deliver hope in every situation, whether it's about emotion, whether it's about intellectual to get past defenses, to get to the root issues. So the gospel has something to say about my neighbor who's just one argument away from divorce. The gospel has a way to speak to and meet the person who's already decided to separate. The gospel has something to say to my coworker who just got diagnosed with cancer. We, we contextualize the gospel for the person in their need, that the gospel has something to say to a family that's just lost their house and all that they own in a fire. That the gospel has something to say to the wealthy cottager who has more time and resources than 99% of the world. And the gospel also has something to say to the school teacher to the, who retired at 60. There, the gospel has something to say to the person who's in poverty. The gospel can meet us in all of our different places. And so we need to be reminded of the fact, we need to remember that the gospel met us wherever we were. 
And so when we are out there in the world and we are talking to our neighbor and talking to that school teacher and talking to that cottager and talking to that teenage boy, that the gospel is simple, but it is complete to meet people wherever they are. The gospel does not simply cease to function when we discover Jesus and choose to follow him. The gospel continues to unfold in a thousand different ways in lives. And like I said, this isn't evangelism training workshop. I'm hoping to have that coming up soon. I'm not going to unpack all the different ways that the gospel meets people, but we have confidence in the gospel because it will meet us wherever we are. Whether we're at the bottom of the barrel or whether we are riding along on our own success, gospel meets us and shows us what we need. But then in evangelism, the second thing that we need to remember is that God is sovereign in evangelism and it gives us hope because he is in control of the evangelistic outcomes. Most of us, as I said, are very average evangelists or even terrible evangelists because evangelism itself is hard. I mean, let's be honest. One of the reasons that we're fearful or that we're timid in evangelism is because it's difficult and this discourages us. And evangelism is hard for a couple reasons, and I'll just touch on two of them and why they are connected to God being sovereign. The first one is the Bible tells us that people, everyone we encounter before they know Christ, and ourselves included, is spiritually dead before Christ comes along. So the Bible tells us things like you were dead in your trespasses and sin in Ephesians 2.1. Then it says you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, and he made you alive in him, in Colossians. And this makes hearing the gospel hard, right? It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says in 1 Corinthians, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So the bottom line in evangelism is it's difficult because people don't like being told that they are spiritually dead, right? People are spiritually dead and they don't like it when we tell them that they are or when they, that they discover that. And that even right now, in the course of their life, they're making choices that result in spiritual deadening. And so when we come along and we start to show them the life choices they're making and their worldview leads them into spiritual death, they don't like being made aware of this fact. People rarely thank us or reward us for our evangelism efforts, right? I'm just telling you, this is why evangelism is hard. This is why we're timid. This is why we're fearful. We go out there and we start trying to offer hope, and people retaliate against us. And so in other words, there's a high social risk to evangelism with what we perceive as very little reward, and that makes us timid, that makes us fearful. Why would we take the risk when there's no reward? And Paul says their act of preaching and evangelism, even of just living as Christians among the unsaved, it's almost as if it gives off an odor. People can smell it on them. That's what he says. He says they, they smell like life or death to people. In 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, he says, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To the ones we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? This is, this is why evangelism is hard. This is why we're timid, because we go out there, even just living our Christian life, even if we don't open our mouth with the gospel, to some people, we are the aroma of death, and they don't want anything to do with us because we just remind them of where they are headed. And Paul ends with this question, and who is equal to the task? Who is up to the task? How can it be done? Well, that's the second reason evangelism is hard, because we can't bring dead people to life. God, or Paul says, who can do this? Who, who can save the perishing? And we can't. We think we can do it, but we can't. And this is where even the super evangelists get discouraged. This is the second reason, because they feel like they have the gift and the office of evangelism, and they've learned, like Apollos, all the right doctrine and all the right techniques, and they've labored at their task, and the people they are trying to reach still don't respond. 
Any evangelists out there discouraged because people you've been evangelizing to for years have just still not responded? Right? And we get discouraged again. So we're discouraged because people don't like the fact that we're evangelizing and there's a big social risk to it. And we get discouraged because even if we are amazing evangelists and we're out there doing it every day, we've been evangelizing people for years and they still haven't responded. And so we're double discouraged now. And if our hope is in ourselves, then we will be discouraged because we don't bring dead people to life. We don't determine the timing of their future. God does it through his gospel proclaimed. As one faithful saint once said, sometimes the seed of the gospel we plant will lay beneath the ground until we do. And that's what we have to remember. Don't think that just because they didn't come to Christ in your lifetime that they won't. Sometimes the gospel lays beneath the ground until we do. And so how do we have hope then? If this is why it's discouraging, then let's look at this. How do we have hope in the fact that God is sovereign over evangelism in these two areas? We have to look less at ourselves and more at God. It's not our skill in evangelism that brings about salvation. It's God's sovereign authority over the hearts of people and the power of his word. And this should encourage us to evangelize. It's God's message. He accomplishes it. And we get discouraged because people don't respond the way we hoped when we delivered the gospel. And so we think that we have somehow failed. But we have to remember that when we deliver the gospel in this regard, we're somehow like letter carriers. It'd be like having a letter carrier who came and gave you your mail, gave the mail to your neighbor, went down your street handing out mail, and he he stood and watched as you opened the mail, and he was discouraged every time you were unhappy with the contents of the letter that you got. Right? I mean, it would be nice to have letter carriers that were that sympathetic. Right? That they were really concerned that the news that you got was good for you. But the reality is, is that the letter carrier is not responsible for the news and not responsible for how you react to it. And this is in the same way how we are responsible for the gospel. We're the letter carriers of a message from God. It's not our message, it's God's message. And he's responsible for how people are going to react to it. We just carry the letter to them. And so it's good that we're sympathetic to how people receive it, but it's not ultimately our responsibility. The contents of the letter is God's, and the result in the person's heart is God's. We are simply called to be the letter carrier, to deliver the message in obedience. And that should, on one hand, lift a burden off of you, that God is the one responsible for the gospel. And we don't have to change one letter of it. We can't change one letter of it because it's his, and that he's in charge of the response. In Acts 18, just as an example, Paul is clearly feeling discouraged and afraid even after having some success in Corinth. But then God comes to him in a dream and he tells him, don't be afraid, Paul. Keep preaching. There are many people in this city who are mine. And so Paul stays and teaches in Corinth, actually for a year and a half, and those that were gods in the city heard the gospel and were saved, and Paul preached there for another, as I said, year and a half. Faith in God's sovereignty produces endurance in our evangelism. Do you see how that works? In other words, why would we go out and proclaim the gospel in Halliburton unless we were confident that God was sovereign in salvation and that he had already chosen before the foundation of the earth those that would respond to his gospel? So we can go out in confidence sharing the gospel, knowing that the harvest is there and that God will accomplish it. Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure and will. So right now in Halliburton County there are people that God, since before the foundation of the world, has appointed for his righteousness and the means by which they will come to their faith is through us sharing the gospel. That should encourage us. 
to keep doing it. Because God has said, I have people in this city and they will come. You just have to preach. You just have to share. God knows. And so we are encouraged in our purpose of evangelism. There's a promise from God that he has people ready to respond to his gospel, that his word will not return void, that it will accomplish its purpose. And therefore, we can be bold in our evangelism, that it will not be without purpose and it will not ultimately fail. We can be bold knowing that we are the means by which God is accomplishing what he has purposed. But it's God who's sovereign. It's God who is saved through faithful, obedient carriers of his gospel. Secondly, just a quick one, we can be encouraged that in our evangelism that evangelism really is a team sport. As powerful as the Apostle Paul was as an evangelist, he is not the most typical example. But even the Apostle Paul recognized that it was not by his power alone or his activity alone, even through the Holy Spirit or even through God, but that Paul was working alongside others in ministry. He was called to a team effort. The Bible tells us that the gospel will encounter many kinds of people. As the gospel is sown, it falls on rocky ground, it falls on thin soil, it falls on weedy places, and it falls on good soil. And so we all can engage people at different points of the gospel arriving. Some of us might be tilling, some of us might be picking rocks, some of us might be pulling weeds, some of us might be planting, others might be harvesting. It's all a team effort for the gospel to get out there. Paul said it this way, specifically, He said, I planted, Apollos, there he is again, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, right? So we get courage and we are encouraged in our evangelism to realize that God has not left us alone in this pursuit, but he has given us the whole church. And so in your evangelism, as you go out this summer, don't go alone. Don't go out there by yourself thinking that you need to reach everybody on a solar effort. Invite each other into our evangelism. Get your friends at your side. And this is why our testimonies and the testimonies of hearing people who have come to faith are so encouraging to us. Because often when we're hearing people share their testimony of how they came to faith, we realize the team effort that was at play. That they talk about how, well, you know, it was my parents who took me to Sunday school, or it was this Sunday school teacher, and then this friend gave me a book, and then I, I was ran into this co-worker who, who took me to church, and then, or, or there was this roommate at college, right, or there's this VBS volunteer who taught me this lesson, or I was hanging out with these mums on play dates, and they were talking about what was going on at church. And so we hear testimonies about people who have come to faith, and we realize that it was a team effort all the way along. There was all these people in their life, and all these points of context which, which were encouraging for us to hear about the means by which God has accomplished their coming to faith. He's accomplished it through people sharing the gospel, and he's accomplished it through a team of people working, not even realizing they're working together to bring this person to faith in Christ and to give them that hope. Thirdly, so when you go do evangelism, the point there is, is don't do it alone and don't feel that you're alone. You may be doing just one part of it. You may be the weed puller or you may be the rock picker and somebody else might be the planter or the harvester. But what you are doing, you are doing on a team and you're doing together with the whole church. And then thirdly, in our evangelism, how we can have more hope or we can have more courage in evangelism is just realize that we need to let people see more of Jesus himself and be concerned less about our arguments about Jesus. In 1 John 1, 3 John, the disciple, says, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. So John is saying, I'm just telling you what I've seen. 
I'm not going to argue with you about Jesus. I'm not going to try and make some big apologetic argument about his messiahship or anything like that. I'll leave that to Apollos. He's really good at that. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to tell you what I saw. I saw Jesus in my life. And so I'm going to tell you about who he is so that you can have fellowship with me. And so everyone we encounter in our, in our life should see in us the Jesus that we have seen. Specifically, they should see the hope that we have found. The gospel is complete for everyone in every situation, and so when we share the gospel that we have, we have opportunity to discover. They have an opportunity to discover it for themselves when they can see it in us. In Matthew 5.16, it says, In this same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so when we look at the examples of the disciples and the followers of Jesus in the New Testament, what we find is that in their relationship, they plant the flag early. This is what I mean by this. We, we need people to see Jesus. And so when you have relationships with people, plant the Jesus flag early. Let them know about your faith. Let them know that you're a Christian. Not to quote Bible verses at them. Not to, you know, inundate them with advice about how they're messing up their life or doing things the wrong way or how their worldview is so wrong. That's not the reason why. Just plant the flag of their awareness of your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ early. And with the flag planted early, then when they are watching you, they have opportunity to see Jesus in your life. That means that as you're going through difficulty, they are seeing the hope that you have in Christ because you're not hiding it. The flag is planted. That means that when they come to you with advice, they hear the words of Jesus in the biblical, wise advice you're giving them because the flag is planted. That means that when they have questions about Jesus or about the Bible or about whatever's going on in their life or when they're lying awake at 3 o'clock in the morning and they can't deal with their guilt because they're a baby boomer, right? Or they're lying awake at night and they don't understand what their identity is or why they are so anxious because they're a millennial. When they come to you with that 3 o'clock in the morning problem, then they know the flag is planted. They're coming to you because they want to hear what Jesus has to say to that. So plant your flag early in the relationship so that people come to you and they have an opportunity to see Jesus. And the encouragement in that is that you don't have to make any great arguments. You don't have to have the Bible memorized from cover to cover. You don't have to have an apologetic explanation for substitutionary atonement or a specific uh, reformed understanding of justification, right? You just have to let people see Jesus in you, and they will come. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us if we let people see Jesus, they will come, those that God has chosen and that they have the aroma of life to them. And then finally, I just want to close with probably the most important thing. We can be encouraged as fearful and timid evangelists in prayer. Prayer creates in us the longing that we need to have for people to know Jesus and the opportunities for us to be effective. So I would say like Beth, this summer or in the next six weeks as we are opening up you know, the capacity here for people, I would ask most importantly that you are in prayer because here's the reality. People who pray about evangelism and their evangelistic ex, uh, um, activities probably do evangelize. People who are currently not praying about evangelism or any evangelistic opportunity are probably not evangelizing. And you can just think for 10 seconds of yourself. Do I pray for evangelism? No, I don't. Am I doing any? No, I'm not. Probably true. Do I pray about evangelism? Yes, I do. Am I evangelizing? Yes, I am. Hey, there's this connection, right? And so I would encourage you, this is why this is the most important one here at the end, I would encourage you this summer to be praying. It begins in prayer. 
Because prayer changes our hearts. Prayer creates in us the longing that we need to have for other people to know Jesus. And prayer creates the opportunity and the boldness in us for us to be effective. And so we are not Christians in name and universalists in practice. Because if we say we're Christians, but then we just say, everybody's faith is their own private affair. Well, that's universalist. That means we're just trusting that they'll figure it out on their own. We don't want to be Christians in name, but universalists in practice. We want to be Christians in name and practice. And so compassionate prayer for others. Compassionate prayer for joy, for courage, for opportunity in evangelism. Evangelism won't work without prayer. And so we can be encouraged as we pray that God will give us opportunity to show us the person to share our faith with, to open up our mouth and share our relationship with Jesus for them. Share the need that you have for prayer to other people in your evangelism. Even the Apostle Paul asked for prayer. This is how important prayer is in evangelism. right? If there was an evangelist to aspire to, it would be the Apostle Paul. And in Ephesians 6, he says, Be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people, but pray especially for me that whenever I speak words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. This is the Apostle Paul praying for courage. So I don't feel so bad when I feel like I need you guys to pray for my courage in evangelism because the Apostle Paul asked his church to pray for his courage in evangelism. And then later on in Colossians, he asks another church to pray for him. He says, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chain. Pray that I may proclaim it as clearly as I should. So Paul prays for courage, he prays for opportunity, and he prays for clarity. This is the Apostle Paul. So I'm encouraged that prayer is necessary in evangelism. If it was necessary for the Apostle Paul, it's certainly necessary for Pastor Paul, no doubt. So as we come into these summer months, we're going to have a lot of opportunities. We're going to be on back decks and we're going to be on boat docks and we'll have these opportunities to shine the light of the gospel to those around us. And we are all timid evangelists. We are all par players at best. But we can take courage that the gospel is complete to meet everyone wherever they are at. The gospel will not let you down. Single moms, Iranian prisoners, teenage boys. The gospel meets everyone where they are at. It is complete. And we can take courage that God is sovereign over the results of our planting. We simply share his message. He is sovereign over accomplishing the results. That is not on us. That's on him. And he will accomplish his results. His word does not return void. And we have a whole church at our back. We're not doing this alone. We have an entire body of Christ by our side. And we can take all of these things to God in prayer. And he will answer. And so this morning was just a reminder. Just just an overview of encouragement for timid evangelists. That we can be bold because these things are true. The Bible tells us so. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that that is not up to us in our clever arguments to bring dead people to life. That you have sovereign authority over their hearts. That we join you in what you are doing. You don't join us in what we're doing. And Father, that your Holy Spirit is going before us and you are preparing hearts to hear your gospel. Lord, make us bold, just as Paul asked for prayer. Make us make us bold. Give us courage. Give us clarity. Let us be the aroma of life to those who are being saved. 
And Father, we pray that you would fill your churches, all of your churches, that you would fill your kingdom with your children, with our brothers and sisters. Even this summer, you would do the miracle of salvation through the gospel that we proclaim. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.